Please turn with me to John chapter 1. All of our children, young and old, remember there was a time in Narnia when it was always winter but never Christmas. And like all the children at heart, I want to prolong these days. Wouldn't it be wonderful if there were 365 days of Christmas? We wouldn't have any money left, but what celebration, what joy. I have a feeling it would seem like that in heaven. This being only one day after Christmas, it just didn't seem right to turn to matters entirely unrelated. So to John's prologue, the first 18 verses, I invite you a very familiar passage to us, the passage with which we conclude our Christmas Eve service every year. John's aim in the prologue was to introduce Jesus and establish the frame within which everything he said and did should be interpreted. Prologue is like an overture. It introduces us to themes that John will return to and embellish. In it, he prepares his readers' minds to process what was going to be presented to them, namely, the reality of new life from God through knowing and worshiping and following the Word made flesh. This fall, in an effort to pursue Christ in community by nurturing discipleship through friendship, that's the men of faith motto, a number of us men have met together to read and discuss Dr. J.I. Packer's classic book, Knowing God. I know of at least six discussion groups. The one I was a part of, am a part of, recently finished discussing chapter 5, God Incarnate. And in his customary, organizing and simplifying, insightful way, Dr. Packer outlines seven revelations about the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ in John's prologue. They are these. He's eternal, distinct from the Father, divine, creator, animator, revealer, and human. We'll take them up in that order. Follow along as I read just those verses that pertain to Jesus. I'm going to skip over 6, 7, and 8. They are about John the Baptist and the same with verse 15. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Verse 9. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, 
Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Skipping to verse 16. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we would not be in this room this morning. We would not know you. If your son had not made you known to us and these great realities by which we live by. Pray that you'd impress these truths upon us afresh this morning. We love you. We're listening to you. Thank you for descending upon us. In your son's name. Amen. I'm going to use Stott's outline as my outline this morning. He's eternal. Distinct from the Father, divine, creator, animator, revealer, and human. Verse 1. He is eternal. In the beginning was the Word. If a Jew were listening to John read his gospel, he would immediately have thought he was reading from Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning. And the Jewish ear would be trained to, to listen for these next words. God created the heavens and the earth, but they weren't coming. Instead, they hear instead, in the beginning was the word. Jews were, of course, taught from the cradle that God had no beginning. He was already there at the beginning. Before time began, when there was no thing or no one God was already there forever. I have stuck in my mind, my memory, a, our silver blue Nissan stanza we pulled into town with. And it was either we were about to go somewhere or we just finished coming from somewhere and we were buckling or unbuckling Greta, who was about three years of age at the time, into her car seat. And... Out of the blue, we weren't going over catechisms or anything like that, but out of the blue, she asked the most profound philosophical, theological question that any three-year-old can ever think to ask. Who made God? And Lisa and I looked at each other. Here we go. How much of this is she going to get? How much of this? Is she going to be okay with? What's going to be her follow-up question? No one. God always was. He's the only one who always was. You had a mommy and a daddy. You came from mommy. But God didn't have a mommy or a daddy. He just always was. Will that satisfy her little mind? Because everyone she knows has a mommy and a daddy. Everything has a beginning, everything seen, whether living like plants, animals, fish and people, non-living things like mountains, oceans, constellations, unseen, angels, demons, everything 
We know this instinctively. We come into the world knowing that everything has a beginning. Everything had a start. Everything has a cause. Except. God, God stands outside of and unaffected by time. When the universe came into being, the word was already there. He was the only witness to the beginning. He simply, unexplainably was, is, and ever shall be, evermore and evermore. Secondly, he is distinct from the Father. John continues, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. So the Word and God are not the same entity or person. The Word is not another name for the same person. The Word is distinct or separate. They both were there from the beginning. They both are eternal. But what are we to think of the word? Doesn't sound like eternal, inanimate material that God used to work with like a potter works with clay. Doesn't sound like a force. The word sounds more like a thought or a line of thinking. And of course, this is what. The Jews, under, or rather the, uh, the Greeks, uh, understood the word logos to mean. John is writing to both Jews and Greeks. He uses this word logos. Uh, they understood it to be uh, a line of thinking, reason behind everything or the cosmic purpose for it all. Whatever the word is, it had no beginning, is distinct from the father. What's the next thing that John tells us? He's divine. And the word was God. This eternal cosmic purpose is God too. As Jews, I'm calling myself a Jew trying to hear John with his gospel We've been taught all along that God is a personal being and we are made in his image and we can relate to him and we do relate to him. We relate to this transcendent being. But from infancy, we've been taught, unlike the Egyptians to the southwest, unlike the Babylonians to the northeast and unlike the omnipresent Romans of our day, that there is only one God. Not multiple gods, not a God of grain, a God of rain and storm, a God of fertility and on and on. But one God who directs, controls everything and everyone, the Jewish God, the Hebrew God. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. John is foisting a paradigm shift onto the Jews of his day. There is more than one member of the Godhead. 
And if this paradigm shift is not made, Christianity and Christ will not make any sense whatsoever at all. To the Jew, this is not only shocking and upsetting, it's heretical. I tried to think of what, what would it be like for what would we have to hear to have something so shocking thrown at us. What if you went to a conference with your favorite, most trusted, learned theologians and Bible expositors all teaching and preaching? And right from the start, right from the keynote address, you were riveted, you thought... There is no place else I would rather be. This is such fine stuff. And day after day, seminar after seminar, new texts, new passages, new books of the scriptures are being opened up to you. And you're loving it. You're eating it up. And on the last day, this revered panel among those on my panel would be J.I. Packer, John Piper, R.C. Sproul, John Stott and David Wells, at least. Here they are, and they are sitting before us, and they say, we've got some news that I'm sure is going to be unsettling for you. But please listen to me patiently. Listen to us patiently. After painstaking, careful study, asking questions back and forth, playing the devil's advocate just to be sure, We all of us are convinced that the scriptures teach there is a fourth person in the Godhead. I know, I know. Leave the stones where they are. Don't pick them up. I know this is shocking, but please listen to me. We are going to show you from the scriptures how this is true. And they would go on to say, we are all, we, each of us believe this with our heart. We are so convinced. And, in fact, we think if you don't come to embrace this, we judge you to be outside of the true faith. Shocking. Upsetting. Heretical. I wonder how much of that John's audience felt when they, were, they, when they read, The Word is God. Not an impersonal force, thought, or material, but another eternal, personal, transcendent, divine being. The Gospel of John begins where John wants us to end or to conclude with an understanding that the Word is God. If you start my Gospel with the notion that Jesus is God, it will make sense as you read. But if you think of him as just another prophet or a kind of superman, you won't get it right. You have to make this paradigm shift. He is just as divine as the Father. He has all the attributes of God the Father. 
He is equal in essence, majesty, splendor, power and glory. And the folk that were in his presence knew he was making such claims. Listen to John 5, verse 18. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, he healed a man at the pool of Bethesda, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. He is God and was with God forever. That means God the Father was never, ever alone. God the Father had eternal company. The Word was always with Him, enjoying eternally rich fellowship. I've uh, recently been reading uh, Dr. Calhoun's History of Princeton Seminary. And uh, read about the first three professors there. Was inspired by uh, his, his work. The very first professor of Princeton Seminary was Archibald Alexander. And I was looking for something else in my shelves. And I found his book uh, in my shelves. And I pulled it out. And at the beginning of the book is this lovely little synopsis of the man's life. And I want to read... A bit of that to you to give you a sense. Haven't you wondered what Father, Son and Holy Spirit were doing before they created? Well, we're not going to learn too much about what they were doing, but consider the rich fellowship that they might have enjoyed all along. that They no doubt did enjoy when we get a glimpse of the fellowship of these three men, Archibald Alexander, Samuel Miller And Charles Hodge, Dr. Miller and Dr. Hodge and Dr. Alexander lived and worked together for many years in absolute singleness of mind, in simplicity and godly sincerity, in utter unselfishness and devotion to the common cause, in honor, preferring one another. Truth and candor was the atmosphere they breathed. Loyalty, brave and sweet, was the spirit of their lives. To their students through all the years, the concord and affection of these servants of Christ was a beautiful sight. This concord sprang from devotion to the same great system of truth. If these three men enjoyed that kind of fellowship for those years, what are we to think of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit from eternity past? Absolute singleness of mind. Sincerity, utter unselfishness, devotion to the common cause, honoring one another, preferring one another, concord upon concord. John packs so much into this one sentence, this first verse. The word is eternal, distinct from the father and divine. Now, John mentions three of his functions. The first is he is creator. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So lest we think that this eternal word was merely a passive witness to creation, 
a marveling bystander at someone else's creative work. John tells us right from the start, no, he's the author of it all. He's the creator of it all. He's the agent of creation. Without him was not anything made that was made. The universe and all that is in it was his imagination brought into being. It sprang forth from his mind and power. Let there be, and it was. Whether things seen or unseen. The unseen leader of fallen angels didn't always exist. And so he's not worthy to be contrasted to the Lord Jesus Christ. A better contrast with Satan is the archangel Michael. They both are created beings. But the second person of the Godhead created them both. And there is an infinite gulf between creator and creature so much larger than the gap between human potter and clay. But what a gap there is between those two. He's creator. He is animator. Verse 4. In him was life. He has life in and of himself. No one gives life to him. He borrows life from no one or no thing. He has it in himself. And it doesn't run down like a battery over time. He is the source of all life. Listen to a few of these verses. Remember John's prologue is is like an overture. It sort of introduces themes that he'll bring up later on and embellish. And here's a few places where he does just that about him being the animator. He gives life. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And life depends upon him. I am the bread of life. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And as animator, not only does he give and maintain life, he resurrects it. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. To Martha, I am the resurrection and the life and so on and so forth. No one, no thing, no power can take his life from him. He lays it down. He gives it up and he will raise it up again. He is animator. He is also revealer. In him was life and the life was the light of men. He is the true light. According to Romans, there are truths that should be self-evident to all mankind. As we live in God's creation, these things should be self-evident to everybody. Behind every watch, there is a watchmaker. Behind every piece of art, there is an artist. Behind every painting, there's a painter. 
The universe is a highly sophisticated, beautiful piece of art. There is an eternal creator so big, so intelligent and so powerful that he brought the universe into being. And that creator has put a moral compass within us. We come into this world with a sense of fair play. We instinctively know we should behave toward others the way we would want them to behave toward us. We also know that we have broken that inescapable moral law. We all of us know guilt too well. All of these truths should be self-evident to everybody on the planet. These undeniable truths, according to Psalm 19 have been published at all times, in all places, in every language. You don't have to learn a new language to understand. It comes in all of our heart languages. They confront us every day. They're self-evident to the most intelligent philosopher, to the most ignorant heathen, and everyone in between. And yet... We suppress them. We look away from them. We cover our eyes from them. But then there's a class of other truth. Spiritual truth. That the most devoted, gifted intellects could never discover on their own. Given an eternity of time with all of the books before them. Verse 18 of chapter 1, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. No one can know God the Father unless the Son makes him known. Jesus said, whoever has seen me has seen the Father also. No one can know the Son unless the Father makes him known. No one can come to me, Jesus said, that is, believe in me, unless the Father who sent me draws him. Later on in the same chapter, and no one can come to me unless it is granted by my Father. Some truths remain unseen until we are given eyes to see. We are helpless until we are given those eyes. We would never know there are three persons in the Godhead. We would never know that our sins were so offensive to him that we deserve eternal punishment. No, we'd be like our neighbors, our good neighbors who don't go to church. We would think things like them. I'm not as good as I could be, but who is? I'm not so bad. There may be plenty of folk that are more moral than I am and plenty that are not as moral as I am, but. In the end, my good deeds are going to outweigh my bad deeds, and I'll be in heaven. We would come up with a a works righteousness religion, like all the other religions, like all the other folk. Grace is an alien doctrine. 
We would never think of that. Think that up. We would never know that God has provided a mediator for us, one who lived the life we should have lived, died the death we should have died, paying our penalty. We would never know this mediator was divine and came into the world by incarnation, would rise from the dead, return to the Father, and would come again to bring us into indescribable, all-satisfying, eternal fellowship. We are the man born blind in John chapter 9. Jesus makes mud and puts it on our eyes and tells us to wash in the pool of Siloam. We do, and all of a sudden we see. We see things that we never knew were there. We've been given the secrets of the kingdom, eyes to see. He reveals the truths that man needs the most, but could never attain in an eternity of time on his own. This is what Jonathan Edwards said, how he described when it was that he went to the pool of Siloam and washed the mud from his eyes. This is from his personal narrative. The first instance that I remember of that sort of inward sweet delight in God was on reading those words in 1 Timothy 1.17. Now unto the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. As I read the words, there came into my soul and was, as it were, diffused through it a sense of the glory of the divine being. A new sense, quite different from anything I had ever experienced before. I kept saying, and as it were, singing over these words of Scripture to myself and went to pray to God that I might enjoy Him and prayed in a manner quite different from what I used to do with a new sort of affection. Creator, animator, and revealer are the three functions that John mentions here. Then he returns, number seven, to one more quality to his being. Verse 14, the word became flesh. He is human. John shows him thirsting, hungry, tired, weeping. He's a true man. The transcendent became imminent. The spiritual became material. God became man. He did not cease to be God, but he added humanity to his being. And so we say now he has two distinct natures in one being. Two distinct natures in one being, and how do we grasp that? I think Lewis provides the best analogy. It's like a shepherd becoming a lamb without ceasing to be a shepherd, yet living a genuinely authentic life of a lamb. Two distinct natures in one being, making Jesus Christ utterly unique. Moses or any other prophet, none of them could say that. The Father could not say that. The Spirit could not say that about Himself. Two distinct natures in one being forever. As God, 
He had no beginning as man. He had a beginning. John Stott reminds us this was not a visitation like he had made as the angel of the Lord on numerous occasions. This was an incarnation. The creator assumed the human frailty of his creatures. The eternal entered time. The all powerful made himself vulnerable. The all holy exposed himself to temptation. And in the end, the immortal died. The infinite gulf between the creator and the creature was spanned by this baby in Bethlehem's manger who cried when he was hungry, crawled, took his first steps and fell. He bruised and in time, in time, he knew he was the second Adam. He knew he came into the world to crush the serpent's head. And he set his face toward Calvary. He's human. In 1799, a French soldier in the Nile Delta happened upon an artifact that would become the most visited object in the British Museum. A number of you have seen that object. This 45-inch high by 28.5-inch wide by 11-inch thick slab weighed about 1,700 pounds. It had writing on it that dated back to 196 B.C. Because the stone offered three versions of the same text, it proved to be the essential key to our modern understanding of ancient Egyptian literature and civilization. It opened up that world to us. Today, the term Rosetta Stone has been used idiomatically to represent a crucial key to the process of decryption of encoded information. Especially when a small but representative sample is recognized as the clue to understanding a larger whole. A small but representative sample is recognized as the clue to understanding a larger whole. In this sense, John's prologue is a kind of Rosetta Stone to the rest of his gospel. If we want to understand why Jesus says what he says, does what he does, we must keep in mind he is eternal, distinct from the Father, divine, creator, animator, Revealer and now human. And he always will be. Evermore and evermore. Amen.